So I want to look at specifically James chapter 4. We'll talk about that in a moment here. But there's a unique passage, uh, just a little bit of backstory. James is kind of a very unique book in the New Testament. A um, little bit of backstory. He is uh, believed to have been the half-brother of Jesus, that, that yes, Mary, uh, the, the, the mother of, of Jesus, um, uh, had other children, and one of her ch- children was a guy by the name of James, we believe that. Uh, he was the guy that actually had written this. Uh, he had risen to some level of, of prominence and authority within the early church. He um, also ended up uh, being, being killed for his faith. Um, but he had, he had written a book that a lot of scholars believe that this was the book that was attributed to him. His name is also in uh, the original language, Jacob. So in some older translations, it might say Jacob. In this context, we'll, we'll just call him James, because that's maybe how we think of him as. Uh, James writes really unique. Um, uh, James writes with uh, heavy influence by two sources, no doubt. Um, one, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, there's heavily influenced by traces of what Jesus had to say on that uh, incredible sermon called Sermon on the Mount. The second type of influence that can be attributed to the scholarship and right authorship of James are the Proverbs. Um, and, and the way that James writes is very different than like other New Testament writers. Uh, the way he writes is sort of in these uh, short, brief, punchy, uh, wisdom-esque literature statements. Like they're, they're filled with punch. His intention is to shock you. His intention is to hit you between the eyes to stun you, and then to drop truth on you. He is a truth bomber, all right? He throws truth grenades into the crowd and says, deal with it. You have to deal with this. You have to think about this. Um, In some ways, James is kind of like life, right? Life. Life is not oftentimes sensitive or ginger or careful or calculated. It just kind of comes at us. James comes at us. And the way that he comes at us is, is no doubt spirit breathed. God is uh, led and guided and ordained and uh, moved the hand of James to write and drop these truth bombs before us. So um, what we are to do as, as readers to take a deep breath and to just absorb it, to let it hit us, to not try to lessen it or to deafen it or to domesticate it, but to just allow it to have the impact upon us that it's intended and then deal with it, all right? Um, um, and, and that's kind of the way that James writes. So what I'm about to read is one of those passages that's kind of punchy, that's strong, that's kind of between the eyes, but just, just listen to it and then we will begin to talk a little bit about it. So it's James chapter uh, 4. I'll pick it up at verse 13. Let's kind of outline a little bit about, well, let me do this. I'll read it, and then we'll kind of go, we'll backtrack on this. So James 4, and just by the way, my words today are going to be a little bit brief because this is a family service, uh, which means we don't have any children's ministry. Our kids are in here, as, as uh, Gunther had kind of so well shared that, uh, you know, we want to be uh, sensitive to the kids that are in here, and, and therefore I'm not going to teach for as long as I typically do. You're welcome. Um, and, and I'll just kind of keep my words brief, but hopefully uh, uh, enough to, you know, give us something to chew on and think about and meditate upon. Uh, James 4, first, verse 13, he says, this, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears 
for a little time and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and or do that. And I'll stop right there. There's, there's more that I can keep reading. That kind of dovetails into this. It's really good. In fact, I'd encourage you, maybe on your own time, read it. It's rich. It's full. But for the sake of brevity, I'm just going to stop right there. Um, what, what James is going to do, there's, there's two things that we'll look at in this little passage that he kind of, uh, uh, um, I'll, I'll reduce it down to the, the two main key elements. One is this admonition. We'll kind of go back, track, and uh, unpack what his admonition is. He, in other words, it's a rebuke. He just straight up calls it like it is and like, look, stop it. Stop doing this. And the presupposition is that we, we do this. We do this all the time. And we'll, we'll unpack what that is that we do that he's saying, stop, don't do that anymore. And then we will look at his advice. Um, we say this all the time. The Bible is not primarily a book of advice. It is a book of good news. But there is advice. And the advice that's ever given, always given throughout Scripture, is always based upon an assumption of uh, good news, something that God has, has done. So we'll try to uh, incorporate and understand what that is. So first of all, the admission and then the advice. Uh, let's first of all take a look at the concept or the idea of this admission. What does he say in verse 13? Um, I'll just break this down for you in three things, uh, five ways actually. Uh, there, there are five assumptions that uh, James assumes that you and I are, are doing. And, and the way he breaks this down is he says, here's what we do. And he says, those of you who go around and saying this, and, and throughout the book, he, he uses this literature, this phrase often, those that you say this, those that act like this, those that do this. Um, and then he begins to unpack or dismantle the ideas or concepts that are kind of fortifying that. So there's five assumptions that James assumes that you and I, and his, the people to whom he's writing are, are doing. So assumption number one, I think I have it up on the screen. Assumption number one, I'll read it verse 13 again. You say today or tomorrow. So here's, here's the five assumptions. I'll go through these really quickly. Um, I have them up on the screen so you can write them down or whatever. So assumption number one is that you assume you have the day, today or tomorrow. You assume that. You assume today is a guarantee or you assume tomorrow is a guarantee. Um, and the reality is, right, we, we know that's, that's, that's not based upon... Really, it's not really even based upon logic. It's not based upon reality because none of us really ever should assume that we have today because nobody knows what the rest of today without being, you know, morbid. Um, But we shouldn't assume that. And that's what he's saying, that we assume that we have the day. The second assumption is, he says, we will go into such and such a town. We assume that we have a destination. We assume assume that we know where we're going to go in life. We have these ideas. We make plans. I mean, we live in a college town for goodness sake. Like, that's the point of college, right? It's to kind of map out a destination. It's the assumption that I got tomorrow and I'm going to go someplace. And so we assume this destination. The third thing is we assume that we have time. He says, and spend a year there, right? We assume, number four, to have an opportunity. And he goes on to say, he says, spend a year there and trade. It's to conduct business, to, you know, turn profit. And then the final assumption is that you assume that you will actually have success, that you will actually bear fruit, you will make money, you will make a profit, you will do good. Um, and in some way, when you think about these, these five assumptions, in some way, these five assumptions are the main two-by-fours that frame out the American dream, right? 
We all assume that we have a day, today, tomorrow, we have a destination, we can make something of our life, we have time, we have opportunity, and we have this end goal in mind that somehow we will be successful, we will make a name for ourselves and succeed. So these are five assumptions that James says, you say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year at the end, trade, and make a profit. So he goes on, and now he begins to offer his advice. So that's, that's just, that's the bomb. He throws it out there, says, here's what you're assuming, don't do that. Stop doing that, in other words. Again, the assumption is, that's what we do. We assume a lot out of life, and yet he goes on to give different ideas or advice for us to think about. So the question is, that way I want to frame this, is, is really what is the problem? Like, what's the problem that James is basically throwing our way? If I can put it this way, the problem is building our lives on false assumptions, on assumptions, building our lives on these, these things that we think we can assume instead of upon a wise view of life and a wise view of God. So a wise view of life is what he's going to describe in the very next verse, verse 14, and the wise view of God he's going to describe in the verse immediately following that. So in other words, if I can put it this way, as, as, as human beings, we have this tendency to kind of build upon these false assumptions. The, the key word here is false. Um, we think we can assume things, but in reality, we can't because we don't have any guarantee that those things will actually be able to hold up or sustain our dreams. Um, nobody builds for destruction. Nobody sets out building a dream, thinking I'm going to build for my future with rotten wood and empty dreams, and my life's going to end in an absolute horrific disaster. Nobody sets out with that intention. But oftentimes, that's what happens. And we're disappointed. Sometimes we turn that disappointment into anger towards God. But in reality, oftentimes it has to do with the fact that we are actually building our lives, constructing your future, if I can put it that way, upon assumptions rather than upon a wise view of God and a wise view of life. And the book of James is filled with wisdom. He starts out, he says, if any of you lack wisdom, ask God. He gives it liberally. So again, in kind of keeping in sync with what we would call wisdom literature, like the Proverbs, um, James writes like that. So he drops like these punchy little Proverbs, these ideas, these concepts, and he says, look, this is about wisdom. It's about building upon something than just what is out there uh, at wholesale value. Assumptions are wholesale. They're cheap. You can get a lot of it, but at as much as you're able to accumulate and acquire and get and consume, it will not be able to sustain you forever. So the problem I think James is saying is not so much in planning. He's not saying don't plan for tomorrow because he actually talks about that in other places. The idea is that we are building our lives upon these assumptions. So I've said that three or four times, so hopefully you get that. You guys got that? What's the problem? Good, good. That, that was all in sync. You guys, really good job. So let's go on and begin to take a look at uh, the wise view of life. Verse 14, the wise view of life. So James says in verse 14, the very next verse, he says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, for you, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So he, again, he drops his truth bomb. Like the reality is like, look, you don't, you don't, this is who you really are. It's almost like he pulls back the veil. He pulls back all of these assumptions. He pulls the thread in the assumptions of our lives, and the whole thing comes undone. He says, you want to know who you really are? 
you want to know what life is really about, that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is actually being able to see things as they are, not how we project for them to be or want for them to be or wish for them to be. Most of our lives, we live in sort of these constructed realities. We construct life based upon what we want it to be. We think that if I wish strong enough, wish hard enough, have enough desire or determination, I can construct and create my own reality. But unfortunately, that does not work. It may work in the American dream. It doesn't really work in other parts of the world. But the point that I would make is he was really trying to point out is that the reality is, is that we don't know what tomorrow will bring. We just really don't know. We have no clue, no way of understanding of what our lives have in store or what is your life. He says, you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Another translation could be, your life is a vapor. Uh, other translations might be like, your life is like smoke. It just, it's, it's something that's intangible, something that is, is transitory, something that is not forever. If you want to think about it in theatrical terms, your life is like a bit player on a stage. You have a 40-second role in a massive epic drama that's five movies long. Your role is four seconds, right? That's the idea. That's what he's trying to communicate and state is that our lives are these little vapors. It's not to reduce or dehumanize or anything or detract away from the significance of your life. That's a whole different subject all matter, all together. But the idea is that life is fragile. All right, so this past week, some of you already know, but I'll read, tell you if you didn't know, my daughter and I were deciding to go on a hike. And so uh, Thursday night, we thought, let's just go see the sunset up on top of, of Bishop's. Uh, originally, we thought, let's, let's go up Madonna. Instead, let's go up in Bishops as we were driving down Foothill. Uh, last minute, we kind of chose, let's go up there. So we went up there. We get to the very top. There's a young man up there at the very, very top of the rock with his uh, gal friend. And uh, he's taking photos with his drone. He ends up packing it in his backpack. And then uh, is, is we're all kind of making our way down. It's about 5.15, maybe 5.20, something like that. And immediately, in an instant, we're, we're the only people up there. There's nobody else there. It's actually a beautiful night. It's really warm, surprisingly warm. Um, and, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking there probably would have be a lot more people up here, but there weren't. It was just, it was just us, us four. Uh, and immediately out of the corner of my eye, I'm looking over off at CMC, uh, getting ready to descend the rock. And out of the corner of my eye, I see him. And uh, all of a sudden, he's, he's, I see him leap, and he's gone. He's gone. And I, I heard, I heard. I heard the, 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 the drop, the, the fall. I immediately run down, go down off the rock. I run around. I, I locate him there. He's, he's there. I, I, I wasn't really sure if he was even alive at that point. Um, long story short, come to find out that obviously he's, he's not able to move his legs. Uh, our hope, our prayer is that somehow by a miracle of God's grace, he will regain mobility. He will not be permanently paralyzed. Uh, but at the end of the day, what, what ended up, basically becoming was, was nothing more than a desire to go see a sunset turned into this deep interconnection with a family that I've never met before, uh, deep interconnection with other people that I had no relationship whatsoever before, but now our, our lives are, are deeply connected. And this young man, is, his life may be permanently changed for the rest of his life. Um, and, and again, young guy, 19 years old, strong, healthy, uh, he just started Cal Poly, just graduated from uh, Royal Grande High School. His father is a teacher there as well. Had his entire life ahead of him. Uh, people that know him have communicated to me. He's extremely bright, intelligent, smart, and witty, and 
uh, attractive and athletic young man. His whole life is, is literally uh, ahead of him. And, and now all of that is completely in, in the balances. Um, and when that young man, I'm certain, set out on the hike that afternoon, had no idea that his life would radically change to that measure, that degree. Um, that, that's, that's, that's a definition, it's a case study, it's an, ex, it's an example, an analogy of how our lives are, are like vapors. We, we have no guarantees. It's not to uh, create morbidity, it's not to cause us to navel gaze, it's not for us to get depressed, it's for us to simply look at the reality and be sober-minded. Another way to say it, it's, it's a way for us to look at life through a lens of wisdom. We have no guarantees. Uh, the, the flip side of it is to build our lives on assumptions. To build our lives on assumptions. Assuming that we have things that are guaranteed for us tomorrow. So as I was thinking about that, most people, when they set out to build their dreams, they, they have these hopes that the things that they're going to invest their life, their time, their money, their energy into will somehow bring back benefit to them at some point in their life. Nobody invests time, money, energy into something that will end in utter destruction. Nobody does that. Nobody starts out that way. But what ends up happening is oftentimes it's because we build our lives on assumptions. We assume things. So the question is, is then, then how do we build our lives in a right way? What is life? Why does God care about this? Well, here's what I would suggest. What James is trying to get across is that life is, it kind of raises the question, like, what is life? I mean, he tells us life is it's a vapor. Life is a vapor. Now, it's, it's, it's not less than that, but it's far more than that, right? It's one of those examples of that. It's not less than that. It's far more than that. We know that life has potential. Life is beautiful. Life is good. All these other things. Life can also be traumatic and difficult and hard. But life, it's, that's James' way of summarizing. Life is a vapor. We have, we have no guarantees. But life can also be assumed it's a gift. Life is more than just simply experiences. And this is what I think James is trying to get across. Life, for life to ultimately reach its potential, has to be more than just simply your experience and your encounter with things around you. It has to be more than that. What I think James is trying to say is that life also, in order for it to reach its potential, in order for you to be who you are ultimately to be, you have to at some point face truth. Truth has to have an impact upon your life. You have to face truth. You have to accept truth. You have to imbibe truth. You have to let truth shape you. The assumption is that it's not truth for us as general human beings that is not shaping us. Would you agree with that? As human beings, for the most part, would you agree that for the most part, as human beings, we are not oftentimes wanting to be shaped by truth. Most of us, if we are honest with ourselves, we are being shaped, but not so much by truth. We're being shaped by experiences, we're being shaped by the media, we're being shaped by the music we listen to, we're being shaped by our friends, we're being shaped by the opinions and desires of other people, we're being shaped by all these other forces and ideas and influences, and truth is nowhere on the map. What ends up happening at the end of that is that causes us to then be hopeful, because we never lose a desire to dream. I mean, for the most part. I mean, the idea is we are hope-filled people. We expect something out of our future. And the point that I would make is this, is that 
unless our hope, our desires, our minds, our hearts, our wills, our entire being is steeped in reality, steeped in wisdom, we will then build our lives upon assumptions. And assumptions will fail. Some things that we assume might last longer than others, but at some point, every form of assumption that we build our lives upon will at some point fall and fail. And when it falls and when it fails, we fall and end up failing with it. So again, James offers this other view of life that says, look, your life really is a vapor. You're a bit player on this massive stage, and the main player on this stage happens to be Yahweh. Not you, but that's part of the problem that we as human beings have. We think the main player on the stage of our lives is, is me. I'm the main player. Life is about me. Life is about me maximizing my potential. Life is about me getting good experiences. Life is about me reaching all sorts of things and for all sorts of things that I will hope to one day aspire to and grab. But at the end of the day, what James is saying as he throws this grenade of truth in the middle of us, he says, no, the reality is your life is a vapor and you really don't have any guarantees of tomorrow. Again, this you can, you can read between the lines and James is just like, look, deal with it. Deal with it because this is the reality. You will either fight and resist that and continue to find yourself uh, in collision courses with reality and be broken. Or you will submit yourself to what God is suggesting, be broken by that, and then allow the hand of God to continue to heal you and remake you into something brand new, something better, something that is filled with a life that is outside yourself. So the first thing that we'll take a look at is this idea of a wise view of life. The second thing, let me just jump back into a couple other passages here. I'll kind of take you a little bit of a journey on how this is shaped throughout Scripture. Here's a couple passages. Thing that Psalm 39.5 says, You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. This is the psalmist's way of just saying, this is how big my life is. My life on the span of reality, the span of everything. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you at best. Each of us is but a breath. Psalm 102.3 says, For my days disappear like smoke. Uh, next slide. He goes on, First uh, Peter verse one twenty four says, The scripture says, people are like grass. Their beauty is like flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Uh, again, these are, these are images that Jesus even touches on and talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. First uh, John chapter 2.17, he says this, that this world is fading along with everything that people crave. Just think about that. Think about the very desires that you have right now. What are the number one things that you are longing for, craving for, yearning for, praying for, desiring right now in your life? A relationship, a job, a career, a house, a gadget, right? What is it that you're craving for right now? Here's what he's saying. At some point, that thing will fade. All right? Think about this. Um, I don't know why I'm a sucker for up, up, upgrades, updates, all right? Updates. Like, like when, when, you know, Mac OS comes out with a new update, I'm just like, I got to get it. I got to get it. My life will be complete once I download the newest and greatest update. And finally, when I update it, it's just like, it lit, I've, I've, over the years, I've kind of been able to finally get a handle and, and observe my own, my own self, kind of like as a scientific study. I realized that the sense of joy I get from an update is maybe 24, 36 hours. It's like that's the shelf life of, of enjoyment. 
24 to 36 hours, and that's it. Once, once that's over, I'm like, I'm over it. And then five weeks into it, I'm like, when are they going to come out with another update? Like, I can't believe this is like another nine months away. It's ridiculous. And then I realized, like, I'm, I'm wired to want and desire updates. Like, I'm constantly updating my phone and the apps. Does anybody else do that? Anybody else want to admit to that? Like, both of you guys? All right. We can form a little, little support group for that. But, but the fact of the matter is, is that all of these things in the life will fade away. The very desires you have right now, fast forward five years from now, will those very same desires be there? Oftentimes, if you look at any span of your life, you realize that many of those desires that you had maybe five years ago, they're not there anymore. It, or it's been replaced by something else. That's how fleeting all of this stuff is. This is what James is saying. This is the wisdom that James is basically um, injecting into our minds to think about and to consider that the very desires that we are being moved and motivated by and spending money on to buy and to purchase, all of those desires at some point will shift and change or you will change and shift and not be able to uh, enjoy those desires anymore. So let's say, for example, you have a particular sport that you love. Let's say, for example, you break your leg and you're not able to enjoy that sport anymore. You're not able to work out. You're not able to do the thing. And somehow there is something that inhibits you, prohibits you from actually being able to engage or indulge in that. That's what he's saying, is that life is extremely fragile. That's why John would say, this world is fading away, along with everything that people crave. But anyone, so his, his bit of wisdom that he drops in here, but anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. So he's, he's saying, look, don't be influenced by the things of this world. Don't let it shape or transform or conform or make you or influence you. Allow for your heart to be overtaken by something of greater value, God. So the last thing I want to finish with is this thought, which is a wise view of God. A wise view of God. James chapter 4, verse 15, he goes on and he drops another bit of information of wisdom for us to consider and think about. He said, instead, you ought to say. So again, contrasting this with the verse, two verses prior, he says, those of you that say today or tomorrow, we're going to go to such and such a place and spend such and such money and do this and that. He says, it'd be better for you to say this. So in other words, vocabulary matters. What you say, what you declare actually has weight and value. Here's what he's suggesting. Rather than saying this, rather than building your life upon these assumptions, say this. Here's what he exchanges it out for. It's very practical, right? Very practical. He says this. Rather say this. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that. So in short, what he basically just says, look, it'd be better for you to say, look, as God wills, we will live. And we will do. If God wills, we will live and we will do. God's in control. That's what, that's what James is assuming. Look, again, we will build our lives on the assumption that life is there for us tomorrow, that there is a destination to be found, that there is the ability to do the things that we hope to do, there is the outcome, the benefit, the privileges, all these things that we might get. But again, Life keeps telling us over and over and over again that assumption is a false assumption. James is dropping a truth, wisdom, slash bomb into our midst saying, here's the reality. Accept the reality that 
building our lives upon these false assumptions will lead to disastrous ends. Because when they fail, when they break apart, we fail and we break apart with them. The flip side of it is he offers as an alternative. Instead, declare with your mouth that God is king. Because that's, that's what it means to say, as the Lord wills. It's just another way of saying he, he's king. Because that's what sovereigns do. Sovereigns will stuff. They speak things. They declare stuff. They act stuff into being. That's what a sovereign king does. And he's saying, because Yahweh is king, live your life in such a way that recognizes everything, everything is a gift from him. Life is a gift. It's not a guarantee. God's a guarantee. Life may not. But if I am given life, I want to make the most of it. Tomorrow is not a guarantee. But if I'm given tomorrow, I want to make the most of it in responsiveness to this king who gave it to me. Abundance is not a guarantee. But if it's given to me, I'm going to give my life in praise and worship and honor back to the God that gave it to me. That's that's what James is saying. It's incredibly practical. Because one Being built upon, building our lives upon assumptions will always lead to despair and brokenness and destruction. But building our lives upon King Jesus will lead to a place of hope. Because whatever I'm given, I see it all as a gift from God to be stewarded. And one day I stand before God and he'll declare, well done, good faithful steward. Enter into my rest. The very shalom, the very peace that you long for, it's yours. It's my ultimate and eternal gift back to you. Enter into my rest. The final thing that I would just finish with is this thought. C.S. Lewis uh, famously said, and I believe it's a great divorce, he says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there would be or could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it, though those who, those who seek it, uh, those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. What C.S. Lewis is suggesting and declaring is that really at the end of the day, there are two kinds of people in the universe. There are those to whom say, God, your will be done all that you desire, all that you intend, all that you hope for, God, I want that to be in my life, to be a part of my life. I want to receive that. And then there are those to whom, you know, C.S. Lewis points out, that whom God will say, thy will be done. If, if this is what your choice is, if you choose to build on false assumptions and your life falls apart, shockingly, there are times when God intercepts and intercedes and breaks that cycle sovereignly. And this is the mystery of free will and choice and whatnot that, that no scholar or theologian, in my opinion, has, has very uh, clearly been able to completely, finally lay out in clear certainty. But the point of the matter is, is that somehow God calls us into covenant to trust him. And at the end of the day, is the question, can this God be trusted with my life? Can I fully trust him with my future? Can I trust him with the things that I have? Can I trust him with the things that I don't have? Can I trust him with the things that I don't want to have in my life but are there? Can I trust him with the things that I want to have in my life that are not there yet? 
it's always an invitation. And it always comes back to this thing. And again, like I said at the beginning, that the Bible is not primarily about advice. Do this and somehow you will live. It's about knowing God and you will live. It's about a relationship. It's about being brought into this relationship with this God who is also the king over all things. But he's a good king. He's a good king that loves us. He's a good king that has intentions for our lives that are good, not for evil, not for destruction. And sometimes even though challenges or difficulties or hardships or suffering come into our lives, somehow God uses these things for good. And the reason why we know this is part of the narrative is because we follow a Savior to whom that narrative was followed line by line. Christ comes into this world and did nothing but obey God perfectly. And he's crucified, murdered, betrayed. Life did not go good for him. It was completely destroyed. And yet, through that, on the other side, Christ has died, Christ is buried, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. It's the story that Christ rose again, conquered, is alive, and he invites us to follow him. This is the story of the good news, that we have a God that has not abandoned us, but we have a God that has drawn near and has made himself a part of the very human story of brokenness and suffering to undo it. And the question for us, the invitation for us, is always coming back to the same thing. Will I trust him with my life? So, your life, what is it? How do you think about your life? Do you see it as yours? Do you see it as something that you have a guarantee? Do you see it as a sacred thing that you will control for the rest of your life? How long will that be? Do you know how long that will be? Do you have guarantees of tomorrow? Or are you building upon false assumptions? The invitation for you, along with the information, advice, and wisdom of James, is to say, I'm going to change the way that I think about my life. And I'm going to say, my life is a gift from God. And if God wills, if God wills, God intends, I'll do, I'll be able to accomplish, I'll have all this. And if I don't, God's still God. I trust him. trust him with my life. And that's a path to life itself. This is an invitation to trust God with everything that you have. So we're going to respond. We're going to sing a couple of closing songs. We'll respond by partaking of communion. It's a way to remind ourselves the fact that we have a God that was bruised, broken, betrayed for us uh, so that we who are living in that narrative of brokenness, of hurt, looking for something beyond that brokenness and hurt, we can be brought into that narrative of life on the other side of brokenness and hurt. That's what the communion is all about. It's about an invitation to come to the table to a God that has bled, to a God that is broken, to a God that knows that what pain feels like, to a God that understands betrayal, to a God that feels hurt. To be engaged with him, to be transformed to him, to trust him with your life.